This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg. H bomb. Boom. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post war history and the reasons why the world is like the way it is today. Why is it the way it is today? All done through the lyrics of the number one smash hit from the visionary that is Billy Joel. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. And Tom, are you going to gird your loins for today's adventure? Because. It's a loin girder, (laughs) H-bomb. Katie, I'd like to conduct this episode from under a desk, if that's right with you. Are you going to duck and cover? Yes, I am. For the entire situation? Do you have any um, associations, bomb-like or otherwise, with this? Well, I would say, Katie, in my childhood, there was a spectre at all times. Growing up in the 1980s, you were conscious there were good guys and there were bad guys, and you were told you were on the good guy's side, but the bad guys could do something apocalyptic, and the good guys could also do something apocalyptic. It was in all the songs you heard in the radio, like Nana's 99 Red Balloons. Luft, Luft, 99 Luftballon. And also, what about the final countdown? (laughs) Yeah, it was always exciting because the idea that the world could finish at any minute. I actually have a H-bomb adjacent story, really. Okay. Well, it's it's just an association, and it's to do with my dad. I've mentioned him before. Um, kind of a player, player in the Cold War era. Remember, I told you he was a pilot who yeah. actually flew in the Berlin airlift. But by 1959, he was one of three... U.S. officers who was flying on board a plane that was bringing over the Soviet first secretary, Nikita Khrushchev, who was visiting the U.S. at this time. And uh, the Russians figured, you know, hey, we'll just fly over to America. And the Americans went, na, 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 na. (laughs) We don't know where you're going to go. We want to make sure that you keep on the path. And so my dad, who spoke fluent Russian and also had the appropriate number of flying hours, was on board, as well as a couple of other guys. And I remember him telling me that, um, yeah, Khrushchev, he just was like a regular little old guy. But the thing that was really notable was that he and the other Russians changed into silk pajamas as soon as they got on board for the long haul flight. Did they? Yeah. So ah, comfort was key. Doesn't seem particularly uh, proletariat, that the well, silk pajama. Well, it, it was a little bougie bougie, but you know, they know all about how to take care of themselves and to uh, keep comfy. Um, but also, the, this is actually a little bit more relevant to the H-bomb scenario. A couple years later, 1962, the U.S. was totally freaking out because the Soviets, as you recall, were uh, loading the Cubans up with missiles that could reach Florida if somebody so decided to push the button. And Pentagon officials were consulted to weigh in on the extent of the uh, Cuban slash Soviet threat. And so they called in my dad. Uh, my dad worked at the Pentagon at the time, and uh, his expertise was in Soviet intelligence and psychology. And uh, this is how he told the story to me. I don't know if this is how it literally went down, but I do remember him saying something like, nah, guys, the Ruskies are bluffing. I'm out of here. I got a golf game. Just totally, totally shrugged it off. Uh, yeah, he, he was a little insubordinate, my dad, from time to time, so... I don't know if that was uh, – I'm sure there was a real threat there. 
I like the cut of your dad's jib, Katie. The more I hear about him, the more I like him. Me too. <laughs> so, Katie, we have, as always, a learned guest to talk us through our topic. Thank goodness. Help fill our brains, help feed our heads. Yes. And that guest today is Margaret Macmillan, historian, author, professor of international history at the University of Oxford. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So I think my first question, actually, is almost a sort of scientific one because... We think about the atomic bomb and what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, the H-bomb is related but bigger, badder and nastier. It's much bigger. Uh, the first H-bomb that was exploded, the first test, was something like 450 times more powerful than the one dropped on Nagasaki. So I'll just give you an idea of what the difference was. I mean, some of the military loved it because, as they said, you got more bang for the buck. This whole race to develop the H-bomb, that had been going for a while. Is that right? Is that with the, uh, I mean, it stemmed from the atomic bomb building with the Manhattan Project. But what were the stakes? Did all parties figure that world domination was the ultimate goal? I don't think it was world domination so much. I think more importantly, it was having something so powerful that anyone who messed with you would think twice. I mean, really the important thing about the H-bomb and indeed the atomic bomb was that after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was never used. It was a deterrent. Right. And the idea was that you wouldn't want to use it because you knew that you would get something even worse back. There's no other period in human history like this, Margaret, is there? There's no other point where we have the capacity to destroy the planet we live on. And that is why this period is, has such an extraordinary effect on culture and people around the world, because everyone is suddenly faced with the ultimate existential threat. Yes, and I think it's probably the first time we've ever had to think of ourselves as a global people. I think we're feeling the same thing a bit today with climate change. Um, in a way, there's no escape from it. And as the arsenals got bigger and bigger, it was possible to contemplate every single living thing on the earth being killed. Margaret, what was involved in this race to the H-bomb? Uh, who were the players? What were the countries? And who were the scientists involved? Well, the key players were the Soviet Union and the United States, because although they'd been allies in the Second World War, they very soon became adversaries in the Cold War. And the scientists involved in building the H-bomb were very much the same scientists who'd been involved in developing the first atomic bomb. It had already been imagined theoretically, even before the atomic bomb was exploded. And once relations worsened between the United States and the Soviet Union, it seemed sensible, at least so a lot of strategists thought and politicians thought, to develop the H-bomb. The H-bomb was so much more powerful, and it could be delivered as easily as an atomic bomb. And therefore, it made sense. And so President Truman in the United States gave the order, I think it was in 1950, to push ahead on the development of the hydrogen bomb. And the Soviets, who had pretty good sources of information about what the Americans were up to, decided they'd better push ahead as well. It was such a big part of our childhoods, Katie, wasn't it? This dynamic between East and West, but also the idea of what would happen if someone decided that they didn't want it to be a deterrent, that someone decided to, to do the unpalatable thing and press the button first. Yeah, because didn't you guys in Britain have some sort of big uh, TV drama oh, in the 80s? Threads. 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 Margaret, I, I don't know how you found Threads, but as a kid, it was maybe the most terrifying thing I'd ever seen. 
um, because it was quite realistic, even though they used Rice Krispies and tomato ketchup as the makeup, apparently, for the extras, because it was <laughs> on a BBC budget. <laughs> it, it seemed so realistic in its portrayal of what happens. It wasn't just, this is a big old military dust-up. It was, OK, the bomb's gone off and the apocalypse has arrived. It was terrifying, Margaret. Yeah. Well, there were a number of TV shows like that. There was one in the US called The Day After, yes, I think, yeah. which had the same impact. In fact, Ronald Reagan, when he was president, saw it and it made him rethink the use of nuclear bombs and what the Americans were doing stockpiling. But I think what really I think people thought about the bomb was there's no escape from it. You know, I mean, some people built shelters and they talked about trying to survive. But I think the general feeling, certainly I remember as a child, was that there was no escaping it because if the bomb itself didn't get you, the radiation would. Yeah, a friend of mine, I always remember her <laughs> saying to me with her black humor, she said, oh, yeah, if I see that mushroom cloud, I'm just running right towards it because what's the point otherwise? Well, yes. And, and, you know, that was not too unrealistic. I mean, a lot of the people who died as a result of Hiroshima died in the five years afterwards. Um, you know, an awful lot were killed at the time, but another perhaps 125,000 died in the next five years from radiation poisoning. Which is a horrible death, and you don't want to go that way, really. No, I think a lot of people would rather just go off if you have a choice in these things. Uh, but this was something I think, you know, people had faced in the Second World War the possibility of their towns and cities being bombed. But the prospect that life in a whole sort of area, perhaps in, in large parts of the world, perhaps in the whole Northern Hemisphere or perhaps of the world itself, could be obliterated was something that even in the Second World War, people hadn't really faced. You talked about when you were growing up in, in Canada, having an awareness that life could be snuffed out uh, by an H-bomb. What, how was it reported or, or received or understood around the world in the U.S. and also in the USSR at this time? Well, it depends on the time you're talking about. I think public awareness of what the bombs could mean and what a nuclear war could mean really begins to grow. And again, in, in countries where it's possible, they're very widespread and, and quite strong peace movements. Um, the Soviet Union, certainly until Stalin's death, was a very tight society which kept a very tight control over what was what was produced. And so a lot of people in the Soviet Union, I think, didn't really fully realize what the nuclear arms race meant. But gradually, I think, with the easing up, particularly in the Khrushchev period, Soviet citizens and people in Eastern Europe and elsewhere began to get a sense as well. I mean, it depended on the country. I mean, in China, you had a very cheerful Chairman Mao saying, well, after the First World War, we got communism in Russia. After the Second World War, we got communism in China. After the Third World War, we'll have, we'll have communism everywhere. And he talked very casually about, well, so if we lose 50 million or 100 million people, so what? But I think for most people, including leaders, luckily, that was not a prospect they welcomed. Very much a glass half full guy, Mao, Katie. That's a, the, the picture I'm, I'm seeing there. What was it, Margaret, for you growing up in, in Toronto in that period in the 50s and 60s? I'm guessing at that point there was, we talk about us having more knowledge in uh, nations with a free press, but there was still this delusion wasn't there that was either deliberately or accidentally put around by governments there was a way of surviving this and the whole duck and cover stuff all the stuff about hey you can put black paper on your windows and yeah. you might make it yeah hide under your desk that'll work yeah what i remember when i was at school primary school i guess you'd call it in england in, in toronto was in the 1950s we were given drills where we hid under our desks but we knew i think as i grew older I knew that um, Toronto, which is right on the border with the United States, would be in trouble because until there were rockets, the Soviet bombers were going to come in over Canada. And, you know, if they missed by a few miles or they 
you know, were aiming for Buffalo just to the south of Lake Ontario and hit us by mistake, we were in trouble. Um, so I think Canadians realized there was no way they could escape nuclear war if it broke out. But there were also, you know, people built shelters and there used to be articles. There was Ladies Home Journal, which sort of had recipes and advice for women. And they had articles about, you know, is it what should you stock your your shelter with and should you put curtains up and what would be a nice sort of fabric to use. And there were debates in you know, popular magazines like Time magazine, you know, when is it okay to shoot someone? Well, if someone's trying to get into your shelter, then it's probably okay to shoot them. And so this was something that we didn't talk about the whole time, but it was sort of there. Oh, my gosh. Rem- That's so, yeah. uh, you know, essential. I mean, and I'm thinking about like, when is it okay to eat someone? <laughs> well, these these were sort of questions that, that were sort of debated. I mean, I don't remember the eating. And luckily, Ladies Home Journal didn't say, here's a nice recipe. Um <laughs> But, you know, it was, and there were moments. I mean, I was in my first year at university during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, you know, we were scared. I remember the Kennedy speech, and he was confronting the Soviets who were bringing more equipment to Cuba, and he was going to put a quarantine around the island. And we all thought, does this really mean uh, the war that people have talked about is going to happen? And I, we were scared. I mean, I remember someone coming in and saying, well, if we're all going to die, there is a party tonight. So we thought we'd go to the party. There's so many books and films and songs from that period. Doctor Strangelove is one of the most famous. And I think the thing that scared me most, because the film itself, you can watch it and it's quite a broad comedy. It's a black comedy, but it's a broad comedy, was finding out that some of the people in the military who watched it were like, well, actually, this is pretty close to the truth. Yeah, they, it was almost a documentary. I think it's it's really scary. I used to teach a class in Cold War history for a number of years, and I used to try and show it to my students because it gives you a sense of the sort of uh, central madness, actually, when you get people talking in terms of mega deaths and, you know, doesn't matter if only a few of us survive. Um, it was slightly mad. And Dr. Strangelove, I think, got it very well. The thing that is so interesting to me, Margaret, about Dr. Strangelove is that uh, Kubrick actually based it on some of the protocols that were in place that could potentially lead to nuclear destruction. In other words, the president didn't have to be the one to push the button. It could have been somebody else in the military. Is that true? No. I, well, I would always thought, I, I may be wrong, but I'd always thought the president had the final word and that control over nuclear weapons was something very much kept in the president's control. I know we now know that the Soviets allowed local theater commanders to launch, but I didn't know that local theater commanders could launch in the case of the United States, but there was, would have been nothing to stop them, I assume, if they decided to do it. It almost feels like there's an alternative. Well, there isn't, that's the thing. There isn't an alternative history because it would have been the end of history. But looking back at that period now, it seems astonishing that things didn't happen, that accidents didn't happen, that human error didn't get involved, that one lunatic lone wolf of a commander or a submarine commander or a a general or whoever it was didn't inadvertently trigger the whole house of cards. It's absolutely terrifying. And I think we now know a lot more. You you always learn more about these things once they're over. We know a lot more about the accidents that very, very nearly did trigger something. You know, there's some really terrifying stories about, for example, uh, people somewhere in Wyoming thinking the Russians have sent guerrillas to break into the base when it's a bear trying to climb a fence oh. or a, a technician seeing a flight of geese on the radar and thinking it's a Soviet plane coming in, it's a Soviet bomber coming in. Uh, you know, but what does come out actually is that we owe a lot to the people who refuse to obey orders. I mean, there was a submarine commander, a Soviet submarine commander off Cuba 
and the news came in that the Americans were you know, had made a move, and he was under real pressure to launch, and didn't. And if he'd launched a nuclear-tipped missile from his submarine on the eastern seaboard of the United States, then goodness knows what would have happened. It seems like uh, it can go either way because equally between human error, you can have human heroism, uh, just the one person between utter annihilation and the continuation of this whole mess. I mean, it really it really seems like it's uh, one of those Butterfingers moments whether we're here or not. It does. I mean, I think we all thought, I mean, during the Cold War, we sort of got used to nuclear weapons. We got used to this crazy idea of mutually assured destruction, which has got that wonderful acronym MAD. And we got used to the idea that neither side would launch first because the other side would have enough in reserve to do a second strike, which would destroy you. So if you are the United States and you launch against the Soviet Union first, whatever you do to them, they're still going to destroy you. And so mutually assured destruction kept a sort of balance. We got used to it. We thought, oh, well, maybe that's the way it should be and we don't need to worry about it. But now learning about the, the near misses we had, the close calls we had, it, it makes me even more frightened. Talking of near misses, Margaret, talk us through what happened in 1983 and why, when we all go to bed this evening, we should all offer up a little prayer in whichever language we choose to Stanislav Petrov. Well, what happened in 1983 was that the Korean airliner KAL-007 was shot down. It strayed into Soviet airspace, and it was shot down by Soviet air defenses. It looks like they made a complete mess. They, they misunderstood the type of plane. It didn't look anything like a bomber. It looked like a civilian airplane, which it, which it was. They shot it down, and it was hideous. I remember it. I mean, there was a student from the University of Toronto. Um, we, you know, a friend of mine was teaching who was killed on that flight. And the Soviets thought the Americans are bound to do something. I mean, they're bound to retaliate. So they get very jumpy. And then what happens is the United States and its NATO partners are doing a series of exercises um, to test their command and control. And they're doing some military maneuvers. This exercise is called Able Archer. And the Soviets, I think, knew that these were exercises because both sides had got used to the other doing it. But they became convinced that the Americans were, were planning to launch first. And they got very, very nervous indeed. And luckily, the allies, the United States, uh, Britain and, and their allies found out that this was happening. They had actually a very good spy at the time. And they wound things down and they immediately sort of, you know, sent reassuring signals. But we did come very, very close at that time to one side or the other launching in, 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 out of fear. But you'll have to, sorry, you'll have to remind me about Petrov. I think he was the, he was the colonel in the Soviet Air Defence Force who, when the, the system is telling him that uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile has been launched, he's the one who says, well, I'm not sure that it might be the system, even though the system is on his screen in front of him, is bleeping and, uh, and ready to escalate rapidly through that chain of command. He's the one who just says, hang on a second. Yes, you're right. Okay, we're going to leap out for a quick ad break. But we'll be right back. This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. 
and subscribe now. I'm interested in this, the whole um, kind of pissing war between the Soviets and the Americans in terms of how many bombs you have and how big those bombs are. I mean, it seems like that's part of the the allure. Um, of course, it's, you know, a deterrent, but also every now and again, you get a, a president in or a, a leader in, in the Soviet Union who would be advocating for more, more, more. Um, it almost seems like it's a source of national pride. I think the bomb has a mystique. I mean, we, we call it the bomb, and we don't talk about ordinary bombs like that. And it's a mark of great power status. I mean, I think the reason the British government continues to want to have nuclear submarines and aircraft, aircraft carriers that can carry planes with nuclear bombs on them is a matter of national pride. Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of countries actually need them, but it's sort of a mark of being a great power. And there's also this sort of view that the more you have, the more important you are. And, you know, the stockpiles they got were absolutely ludicrous. I mean, the Americans had something like 26,000 nuclear weapons by the end of the 1960s, and the Soviets had about 11,000. They had far more than they needed. I mean, in the horrible expression of Hermann Kahn, who was one of the nuclear theorists who, who was very influential in the 1960s, both sides had overkill capacity. In other words, they could wipe out every living thing, all humans, all animals, everything on the earth several times over. But, and it was absurd. I mean, you know, they, were, they were running out, they ran out of targets. Uh, Ronald Reagan, when he became president, was given a briefing on what the targets were. And he said, but this is crazy. You know, they, they, had tar they were targeting, you know, datches outside Moscow with many tons, you know, megaton bombs which could destroy everything within a huge radius. They were targeting tiny villages. They were targeting things that weren't even military targets. I mean, they had far more, at least the big powers, the two big powers of the United States and the Soviet Union, had far more than they needed. But I, I think it was this sort of mystique of the bomb and you've got to keep up with the other side. Um, and they counted very crudely. You know, if they have more missiles than us, then they've got to be more powerful. Mm. It seems quite stereotypical masculine, thing in a way like it's it's either sports cars or h-bombs well there was a feminist argument that this was so um which i think may have had something in it i mean it was a sort of you know who's got the biggest gun um it went a bit far i remember listening to a feminist saying you know you can tell that it's all about masculinity because of the shape of the rockets and i thought well er, a round rocket or a rocket that looks like a, a breast for example, won't fly very well. No. And so the shape of the rocket isn't actually phallic. Um, yes, I get, for some reason, phalluses are aerodynamic, not that they're hopefully in the best circumstances going to become detached <laughs> from their owners. I don't know what circles you move in, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that climactic scene, Katie, in Dr. Strangelove, when Slim Pickens is, is riding the nuclear bomb. It's pretty phallic then. Yeah, it certainly is, right between his legs. Uh, Margaret, I wanted to get a little bit more in depth regarding the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 because uh, we did come pretty close to escalating into full-scale nuclear war. And you were saying earlier that you remembered that uh, as a young woman. What happened? What were the circumstances there? The circumstances, I think, were twofold. Um, you had a Khrushchev who wanted to reassert the Soviet Union, and he felt that Kennedy was weak. Uh, Kennedy was young, Khrushchev and he had met for the first time in Vienna, and Khrushchev, who, who liked to sort of bluster and, and was rather bombastic, had sort of shouted at, at Kennedy, and I think he thought Kennedy could be pushed around. But what you also had was a, a new communist government in Cuba, 
And Fidel Castro was a real believer. He wanted to be part of the worldwide communist movement. And he was very keen to ally himself, his island, more closely with the Soviet Union. And so Castro wanted the Soviets to put nuclear weapons and other sorts of military force into Cuba as much as the Soviets wanted to do it. And it was a gamble. And Khrushchev later on said, well, I looked across the Black Sea and there was Turkey and the Americans had missile bases there and they had forces there. But I think it was more that Khrushchev and co liked the idea of a Soviet ally right off the shores of the United States. I mean, you can practically see South Florida from Cuba. And one of the Soviet leaders who was in the, in the Khrushchev sort of inner circle later on said to someone, you know, you have to remember how Cuba made us feel. It was the first time a country had gone communist willingly um, for decades. It made us feel young again. So there was a combination of sort of strategic thinking, we'll put pressure on the United States under this new and untried and, and inexperienced president. But it was also something romantic about it. You know, the world will go communist. I mean, I think it was the last generation of, of those who really believed in, in, the, in the cause. In that 13-day period of the, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it's at its peak, Margaret, what was the closest point in that period that we came to nuclear attack? I think probably the closest point was the Soviet submarine, which had a nuclear-tipped missile on board. And the order was given, or they, they thought um, that they were at war. And, and the order was that if you couldn't be in touch with anyone, then you had to assume the worst had happened. And I think I'm right. I think on the submarine, as an observer, was a Soviet military person, a man, I can't remember his name, who'd been in an incident about a year before where something had very nearly badly gone wrong. And he talked very forcefully to the captain and said, look, I think this just could be a mistake. I think we may have lost communications for any number of reasons. I think, in fact, the Americans were jamming them. And so they didn't launch. But you can imagine, I mean, if something had hit the United States, hit a major center or hit anywhere, I think the, the pressure in the U.S. would have been to retaliate. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was the first time that Wi-Fi hopping technology was used. And I understand that it was the Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr who had uh, developed this Wi-Fi or co-developed this technology. Do you know anything about this, Margaret? Well, just a little bit. I mean, she's one of these fascinating people and she was very, very beautiful. Oh, yes. She had grown up in Vienna um, and I think quite a privileged Jewish family and then had made her way to the United States, luckily for her, before the Second World War and starred in movies. And she's very glamorous, dark haired and very beautiful. And apparently when people went to their plastic surgeons, they'd say, could you make me look like Hedy Lamarr? Um, she was also very clever. And that was something that was an odd combination. I mean, I think most of the men, or they were all men who ran the Hollywood studios, thought that women were either sort of like their mothers, saints, or you know, very dubious characters indeed, or temptresses or whatever. And they didn't like women with brains. Um, and so I think she rather quietly went off and did research. She was very interested in science. Um, she never got a penny. She and George Antill, I think, never got a penny, if I'm right, for their invention, for their copyright. Yeah, the, the, I think the patent had expired by the time the uh, U.S. military used it. Well, I think they were using it even before the patent had expired it. But if you're the U.S. military, you perhaps don't always obey the laws. So as... East and West are arming themselves, Margaret, with this ludicrous amount of H-bomb technology, the amount of, of weaponry they have. There's this parallel development in 
nuclear disarmament in CND over in the UK and across the world, people who are thinking of a different way of doing this. Yes, there was a worldwide disarmament movement and there was a great deal of concern about the H-bomb and what it would mean. But I think there were also those in government who recognised that this whole route that the world was going down was very dangerous indeed. And, and the one thing the Cuban Missile Crisis did was scare the leaders on both sides and scared them very badly indeed. And what it did do is encourage both the Soviets and, and the United States and indeed governments elsewhere in the world to take arms control very seriously. And so in the period right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, you've got some really serious arms control negotiations between the Soviet Union and the United States and arms control measures were taken. They were taken in the 70s and 80s. And so I think there was a sort of sober reflection that we have got ourselves into a very dangerous position. I'm really tickled, Margaret, by not only the proliferation of uh, the films of the era like Dr. Strangelove and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, um, but also there are a lot of parody songs that came out in the 60s. Uh, Tom Lehrer, the mathematician turned satirist. For if the bomb that drops on you gets your friends and neighbors too, there'll be nobody left behind to breathe. Uh, had a great song called We Will All Go Together When We Go. And uh, such a jaunty song. And this is one of my favorite couplets from it. He sings, we'll all bake together when we bake. There'll be nobody present at the wake with complete participation for that grand incineration. Nearly three billion hunks of well-done steak. Nearly three billion hunks of well-done steak. He was very funny, but it's quite brutal. Um, yeah, he had another one about Werner von Braun who was the, um, one of the key figures in developing the American rocket program who'd worked for Hitler. is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. And he has a lot of fun with that. It seems, Margaret, one of these things that we, that we look back on and there's almost a certain amount of smugness now. We look back and think, how the hell could the world find itself in this predicament? But that... That parallel with climate change is an interesting one, isn't it? Because here we are faced with another existential crisis that we don't seem to be doing much about. No, um, it's always easy to put it off till tomorrow. I mean, I think, you know, we're not very good at thinking more than three or four years out um, as a species. And our politicians, if they have to stand for re-election, are thinking in terms of elections. They're thinking, you know, five years, I've got an office. I don't want to risk that. I want to get re-elected. We are thinking more about climate change, but we still need to think and, and I think worry about nuclear weapons. Um, we've seen a lot of proliferation since the Cold War. There are now more nuclear powers. There are still big stockpiles. In fact, Britain has just announced it's going to increase its stockpile. Margaret, I'm interested in which country do you think we need to be the most worried about now regarding their nuclear threat? Well, it's hard to pick. Um, I worry about India and Pakistan, both armed with nuclear weapons and, and a record now of fighting at least four wars since, since 1949. Um, I suppose one of my biggest worries is probably North Korea, because we know so little about decision making in that state. We know so little about Kim Jong-un, what the Koreans in the North do have is nuclear weapons and they have the means of delivering them. And I worry that, you know, the command and control there, if it's in the hands of Kim Jong-un, 
will be to use them if it looks like North Korea is going to be invaded or North Korea is going to be pressured by outside powers. I don't know. Um, but I think we also have to worry about nuclear weapons getting into the hands of, of what they call non-state actors, um, groups who may want to just have them for their own particular purposes. That's really it. It turns into a, a big jelly fight, big grudge match, uh, a beef gone terribly wrong if it gets to that street fighting level. I think it might. And we know, I mean, we know from the experience of the Second World War, I mean, Hitler was prepared to bring Germany down around him. He was prepared to see the German people destroyed um, rather than admit defeat. And, you know, you will get leaders like that who are nihilistic, who are, will be prepared to die and sacrifice the lives of all those around them. So, you know, these are things we should worry about. When you read about the list of military accidents around nuclear weapons, Another thing for us to worry about as we have our tea this evening, Margaret, is the number of H-bombs that have just gone missing, that have, have sunk with ships that have gone down, with submarines that have gone down, that have disappeared off planes. It is worrying. I mean, there was that famous incident off Spain when a bomber went down that was armed with nuclear weapons. Um, you know, there have been Russian nuclear-powered submarines, which also have nuclear weapons on board, which have sunk. And I'm not sure that anyone knows for sure where some of those weapons are. I mean, I assume the Russians have tried to salvage them. But I think that is a worry. And, and, you know, the Americans were very worried at the end of the Cold War about the nuclear stockpiles. And I think they actually spent quite a lot of money rather quietly trying to buy them up and trying to put them out of commission. Um, you know, I think safeguarding nuclear stockpiles is, is a real worry. And of course, there's a worry also that the sorry, really to cheer you up, um, there's a worry that the weapons will begin to degrade and become unstable. And, um, you know, who's looking out for that? No one's looking out for that. And now, thanks to you, Margaret and Tom, <laughs> I'm worried about a very fat fish expiring <laughs> and decaying on top of a bomb in the bottom of the ocean and blowing everybody up. I don't think that's likely to happen because the way nuclear uh, bombs work, they have to be triggered. Okay. Um, but you, I think, you know, we have to worry about such things as radiation escaping, um, poisoning the seas around them, poisoning the land. Um, you know, very difficult to see how we're going to get some of these stockpiles under control. Um, I'm hoping there are enough people worried about them that, that we are doing something about it. Right. I'm going to try and be optimistic about this, Margaret, because I'm at the point where I'm going to dive under the desk in our studio again, maybe just start weeping. Um, being optimistic about it, is it maybe remarkable that more nations don't have an H-bomb, bearing in mind that the technology was developed in the late 1940s, early 1950s. So it was possible for the US and Russia to do it then. Is it not extraordinary that all these years later that there's still a very limited number of nations who figured out how to make one? Yes, I think, thank you for being cheerful. Um, <laughs> the countries certainly that could have done it. Look, my own country, Canada, which produced the uranium and the heavy water that was needed to produce the first atomic bomb and, and was very important part of the, of the whole process, we could have done it. I mean, building a nuclear bomb is apparently not that difficult. Um, there was that famous story of the senior at Princeton who did his thesis, I think he was in physics, and he did his senior year thesis on how to make a nuclear bomb. And he'd got all the information from open sources. Um, the FBI nearly went bananas and sort of rushed in and took all his, his notes. Um, 
but it's not that difficult, apparently. I'm, I'm not about to try it, um, but it's not that difficult to make a bomb. And yes, a lot of countries could have done it. Japan could certainly have done it. Canada could have done it. Um, Germany could have done it. You know, countries with the right amount of scientific knowledge, and if they can get their hands on the, on the fuel, they can easily build them. That's, that feels like it's punctured my optimism, that last part of your sentence. That it's oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Just when I was starting to think there was an optimistic future, Katie. Well, I think the fact that, that so many nations don't want nuclear weapons, even though they could have them, is a good sign. Look, let's be optimistic. Let's hope that the Biden administration, has, which has signaled that it wants to talk about arms control agreements, will, will, will carry through and it will find people willing to listen in countries such as China and, the so and, and Russia. Is, is it true that Switzerland has got the best nuclear fallout shelter? So if something catastrophic were to happen and KTI were to somehow have access to a jet plane, that we would be best in heading to Switzerland? Well, I didn't know that, but it wouldn't surprise me for sure. I mean, to begin <laughs> with, the Swiss think ahead. And secondly, they've got all those mountains. I quite like the idea of getting all cosy in a um, nuclear boutique hotel in Switzerland, um, even without mass annihilation preferably without i think i'd rather go to an ice hotel quite frankly <laughs> margaret thank you so much for joining us um, you've written a number of wonderful books your most recent one war how conflict shaped us that is the book for people to read katie if they want to know more about this topic absolutely thank you margaret thank you interesting discussion i've depressed myself I know. <laughs> well, then your work is done, Margaret McMillan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Katie, we're doing this part of the podcast, this time under the desk in the recording studio. Um, we're holding hands. We're both stricken with fear, uh, existential fear. Um, I am terrified. How about you? Actually, I feel quite comforted holding your hand, and I can actually feel your heart beating. And it makes me feel bonded. So even if this is our last moment before the final flash, I feel like it's a good way to go. My only regret, Katie, is that we've got such a short distance into Billy Joel's magnum opus. <laughs> it's such a we've, shame. We've barely got beyond the second verse and the end of the world is nine. It was going so well. And I actually blame Billy for bringing it to such an abrupt <laughs> conclusion because I was feeling quite psyched, quite amped, and then he bummed us out with this whole H-bomb blabber. So I'm not sure how wise it was. I think it was kind of a buzzkill, but um, I don't blame him for including He it. must have grown up, Katie. Billy must have been growing up there in New York with all these same fears, with the threat of nuclear Armageddon hanging yeah. over his head. No, I think that's one of those things where he probably thought, if I'm going to die in a mushroom cloud, I'm going to be uh, go down a rock and roll star. I think it was one of those it's now or never type things. So it probably put a tiger in his tank, I'm thinking, the whole idea that, you know, nuclear annihilation was around the corner. So that was H-Bomb Katie. Yes. Next week on We Didn't Start the Fire is Sugar Ray, as in... Sugar Ray Robinson, oh, maybe the greatest boxer of all time. I'm glad you even told me that because I heard sugar and I turned off. I thought it was something to do with snacks, cookies, <laughs> uh, sweeties. This is a topic I have no, I don't even have a bad supposition about. I don't have a good guess. I don't know anything about him, I'm afraid.
If you have hungry ears and you crave nutrition and titillation for your frontal lobe, well, why not try a heap and helping of Death of a Film Star? Episodes include Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Heath Ledger. You can learn more about the people that we thrilled to on the silver screen. So check it out. Search for Death of a Film Star at all of your usual podcast procurement spots. Also, please spread that fire on Twitter and Instagram. That's where you can find us. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. If you want to get in touch and give us your uh, personal notes, some information and some thoughts on perhaps upcoming episodes, you can get in touch via fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.